Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Hey, everybody. Quick note about this week's show. My conversation with Sean Penn centers largely on the role of vaccine mandates and the role of mandates more broadly in our society. Now, we recorded this conversation prior to the Supreme Court blocking the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for big employers. and It was also prior to the outbreak of the Omicron variant. So just keep that in mind. Now, the opinions that we express in this episode are not the opinions of medical professionals. As always, if you want up-to-date medical and scientific information on the COVID-19 vaccine, I encourage you to visit the CDC or WHO websites. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! Political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Believe it or not, we are now stepping into the third year of this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, That is hard to get my brain wrapped around, but... You know, when you're living with something for three years, you are at a new normal, whether you want the normal to be normal or not. It's where we are. We're living with this thing. And I think a lot of us would like to get to the point where this virus is actually truly behind us and we can just live our lives fully uh, without worrying about getting a loved one sick, without worrying about getting sick, without worrying to have to get all these different shots and masks and all that sort of stuff. And for some people, the path to that post-pandemic future is obvious. It's simply to make sure that everybody gets the vaccine. Now, look, I am as pro-vaccine as anybody. I think that vaccine mandates are a little bit tricky politically, personally. You know, some people uh, may have their own reasons for not wanting to do it. I think if you're a police officer or a teacher or, you know, in the public health field where you, you have to interact with people, people have to interact with you, I think you should be willing to support the mandates. Other professions, other people, I don't know. But there are folks out there who are pro-mandate and pro-mandate for everybody. And I think it's important that we hear what folks like that have to say. And that's why I want to sit down with Sean Penn. Now, you're probably used to seeing Sean on the big screen. Uh, he's an actor. He's a director. He's a two-time Academy Award winner, uh, basically a global icon. But he's more than that. You know, he's also a disaster relief expert who gets on the ground in tough situations. He actually helped folks out in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, the big earthquake in Haiti and more. And he's the founder of a nonprofit organization, a charitable organization called CORE. And that stands for Community Organized Relief Effort. And he puts himself on the front lines, you know, with these disasters. He's not just sending checks. He actually is there. And he has put himself on the front line in the forefront of this vaccine debate. And he has said publicly multiple times he believes the COVID vaccines should be mandatory for everybody. He really believes this. So much so that when he was filming uh, his TV series called Gaslit, he refused to return to set until all the cast and all the crew had been vaccinated. In our conversation, he makes a very strong case for mandates. And at the end of the conversation, he gets personal. And he he shares this really powerful story about some of the heroes that he met in the aftermath of that Haitian earthquake. 
and what do you learn from some of those survivors? And so whether you're pro-mandate or whether you're anti-mandate or maybe you're someplace in between, regardless, Sean has views and experiences that really need to be considered by everybody. And you're going to hear them right after this break. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The thing about this this podcast idea is, you know, we really just want to have solution-oriented conversations about stuff. And I just want to start off acknowledging that this COVID crisis is one of the many emergencies that you have leaned in on. I just wanted to, A, just appreciate you for doing it, and B, just give you a moment to explain a little bit about the work that you've done so far to try to help people. When the COVID pandemic hit, we, because we had an infrastructure, we raised our hand, not knowing in what direction we were going to go, but just to, to say, starting in the state of California with Governor Newsom and with Mayor Garcetti, saying, how can we help? And it turned out that one of our gifts was a, an ability to create surge recruitment and, and surge implementation. So we were able to very quickly train up young volunteers and staff and create a workplace for people who'd lost their jobs due to the shutdown and so on, and be able to surge that, getting up to, you know, over 10,000 tests per day. And, and, and to date, I think, you know, millions now of tests and vaccines. Why were you guys able to do that when other people weren't? What's your kind of secret sauce? What's the special quality you got that lets you do that kind of stuff? Well, hopefully this will be replicable in the sense that we did find that there was an awful lot of local will because we hired all locally to the areas that we worked in. You know, you started the conversation about that you try to have solution-oriented conversations. This feeds naturally in my head today to the, the whole discussion about mandates. Mandates gotten a, you know, a bad name. But there's, there's something preceding COVID, which I had, I had already felt very strongly that, that had been missed in my own generation, which was mandatory service of one kind or another uh, for young people, because I think that it, it, it creates a cellular belief that each one of us can be of service and can help. Once, once we have seen the work of, of our own hands, be it whether it's in the military or forestry or or working with the, the elderly, whatever it, area it is, it has always occurred to me that 
I would have benefited from the structure of mandatory service uh, coming out of high school or exiting university. It's so weird to hear you say that because I think most people think about you as a freedom guy. I think when you think about Sean Penn, you think about kind of a freedom-loving rebel uh, who's cut your own path, and yet you're saying that you actually want more structure and more mandates on people. How, how, do, you, how do you balance that, that, that rebel image with this sort of, I don't know, idea of people need to be kind of structured and made to do good stuff? Well, the freedom has never been free, and it shouldn't be. At the end of the day, you know, when we look at what's happening now, we, we are likely never to be free of, of variants of COVID-19. We are going to be a population that's, that's largely vaccinated. I wouldn't anticipate us seeing, but for some deathly variant, the kind of death tolls that we've, you know, gone through in these last two years or, or, or suffering and remembering that the death tolls include people mostly dying by themselves without family. And, and I don't see that, that the remaining part of our country is willing to honor those deaths and honor their essential service. And this is why the word mandate gets, you know, it becomes like this infantile argument where because people I don't like are telling me I should do this, I'm just going to go and do the other thing. That's not freedom. That's just a, a total disregard for interdependency. We get independence through a recognition of interdependency. And so it's in that that I, I, I would like to see this country kind of find its way. You know, so, so many issues facing us today, the climate issues alone should take up two years of everybody's life before they go off into the big world making money. And with incentives, you know, where some of their college tuition may be paid as a result of their service or whatever, whatever it takes to, to get that ball rolling. Without it, I think that, it's, that we're doomed. So listen, that all sounds very noble, but some people aren't going to like it. Uh, for instance, you, know, you said you know, some people don't want to honor the debts. Well, I think if you're thinking about, uh, I guess as you're describing to somebody who's just, uh, hey, screw you, I don't want it. you can't tell me what to do, that might seem like dishonoring the debts. But you know, a lot of the, the people who are hesitant about the vaccine are African-Americans, uh, Latinos, women of color. You know, some people might say, look, I'm black. My community's been under the boot heel of government force and coercion. Go to hell. I mean, how do you respond to people from communities of color who, who are scared? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's a very good question. And I think when I've had conversations that go, you know, related to the, the concerns that come up, particularly in the black community, inspired by the T Tuskegee, it's not that I'm old enough to remember from my history books. This is in uh, our up to, what, about 1972 in our lifetime. So those stories are told in certain communities, and I understand the hesitancies that come with it. Yet, you know, we are all in a constantly evolving world where while we have to put forward a very healthy level of skepticism on everything, holding on to those thoughts as, as, a, as a means to justify, in this case, not being vaccinated by a, a proven by billions of people now, vaccine around the world, is really bringing the ball back to 1972. And it's where we, we start to do to ourselves maybe what was once done to us. I think that it is just one of those jobs one has to, first of all, find the people who are trusted in the community, who have the rationality and not the emotionalism or the story-born fear or they're hunting in the wrong silos of information on the internet. But finding those local people who can talk to them and resourcing those people 
it's a slow, it's a very slow horse. You know, we had once upon a time, we were doing thousands of vaccines a day at at all of our locations. And today, you know, we're basically, you know, Laura Ingram's nightmare, the door knockers who come and say, hey, have you, anyone else in your family not been vaccinated? And then, you know, you give the information campaigns. You're doing that, you know, again, by employing local people, uh, familiar faces to make those door knocks. Nobody's forcing anybody to get a vaccine. Uh, A lot of times I wish we could. I'd like to put together a ninja force that does drive-by darting of people that don't get vaccinated simply for their own good. But we don't get to do that. So in the meantime, we got to continue getting the information out there, continue to normalize it, continue to tell the good news stories about the vaccines. But I don't, I don't think that in this culture here in the United States that we're going to get all the way there. But what I would say to those who I say should know better, those who have access to credible scientists and doctors, for example, basketball players. What I would say is that's fine. Stay home. You don't get to play in my city. And I, you know, and your team has the dignity to tell you so. That's what I say to those people. And and then we have no argument. Don't I'm not going to come to your neighborhood and say that for freedom's sake, I can drive through it at a hundred miles an hour with my lights off. I don't have the freedom to do that. You take this stuff pretty seriously, even to the point of on your own production set as an actor, uh, you quite famously said, I'm just not going to work with anybody unless they're vaccinated. And I think ultimately the, the crew got vaccinated. Give me the backstory on that. I mean, how do you, how the heck did you pull that one off? Yeah, it was a bit spontaneous to tell you the truth. What happened was, you know, I had of course been working in the space for you know, a year leading up to beginning to work on this project, you know, there were by that time COVID protocols being implemented on all sets uh, that had almost exclusively reliant on uh, testing. And this is at that moment where the vaccines had come online and, and, and many of us, myself included, were very optimistic that the hesitancy in the country would not get to the level that it had been, but that we would get you know, easily up to 70% and then have some information animation to, to get to the, the rest of the, those who were hesitant. And then while we were working, uh, De- the Delta variant came on and it was transmitting so quickly from person to person. Now, at that point, I was fully vaccinated and I didn't feel particularly unsafe and in fact felt very frustrated by all the masking and so on that had to be done. So the, the job was doing, being done pretty well. But then what I, what I knew was that there were, we had what's called zone one, which is the actors. And this goes to a financial bottom line. If a crew member gets sick, that, that person is re- relatively replaceable for the period of time they'd be down. If an actor gets sick, you might you, the whole thing may shut down. So the, the protections around the actors were fantastic. But what about the stagehand who is vaccinated? and doesn't want a breakthrough case of this Delta variant, and they can't tell their fellow stagehand, who's nowhere near the actor, to do anything, and the company itself is not doing it. So I said, this is simple. I am feeling complicit. I went to the first AD. I said, I'm going to finish out today's shoot, and I will come back when this entire production, from the secretaries in the production office down to the grips on the set, everybody in between can show proof of vaccination. When you said that, what did the AD say? 
frankly, I had immediate tremendous support. And that was true all the way through. I didn't have direct conversations with the, the executives at NBC Universal, who was the parent company of this show, but the producers, the director, my, my co-actors, tremendous amount of support for it. Now, this was a show that had a lot of stuff that I was not involved with. So no one else was putting their foot down in the way that I was. So what it meant was, all right, Sean's going to take a couple of months away. We're going to shoot out everything we can without him because this goes to a union agreement where they had to call the unions. I thought I'd be going back to work, you know, in, in days or a week, but it turned out to be months because the unions insisted because they bow to their fringes. They, they sis insisted that they, they carry all of their unvaccinated union members to the end of X date when we are forced to shoot with Sean again. And at that point, those who are not vaccinated still will go off the show and vaccinated union members will fill their positions. So that's that's the way it worked. And I think that the biggest victory in it was that were the people who took it upon themselves to get vaccinated so as not to be replaced in the end. So on the one hand, you know, that's a, a big victory for public health. But somebody else might say it's a big defeat for individuals. You know, one of the most famous actors in the world basically strong-armed people into putting something in their bodies they didn't want. So, you know, how, how do we deal with this? Because there really are two com competing values here. Um, hey, listen, I, first, I have a friend who has her thyroids basically been removed. She can't take the vaccine because they've got to get other things in her body right for the vaccine to... To, to function properly for her or not hurt her. She wasn't able to go into a, a convention, a pretty important convention that she had flown across the country for because she not vaccinated. She wasn't able to go because the people who are able to get vaccinated didn't get vaccinated. If we left this down and protected people who have those kinds of health issues that, that prohibit them from getting the vaccine, if we care about them, if we care about our children, then we have an obligation to do the very basic reading. And yes, it does ultimately have to come down to a common sense of rationality, which I think is readily available. No one would tell me that if there's a child in the middle of the street and a truck is about to hit that child, that there's a, a freedom issue of, hey, maybe that kid wants to get hit by the truck. Don't touch the kid. That, uh, that doesn't make any sense. With freedom comes responsibility, and some of that is to being rational. Of course, there are some people for whom their doctors will tell them that the vaccine is a, a danger. All the more reason the rest of us have to get vaccinated. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. You're somebody who's put your butt on the line. You're not somebody who's just sort of sitting around pontificating. The problems that you want to solve are problems that you've seen up close and personal, seeing you know, Hurricane Katrina and some of the changing climate and how, how that drowned in American City. You know, you've been to Haiti. You don't, you don't just write the check and send it over there. You've been there yourself. So people may not like what you say, but they sure like what you do or they should. Can you talk a little bit about why you do the stuff that you do? What are you getting and what are you giving as one of the most famous people in the world showing up in these really hairy situations you sometimes go into? You know, there was a great uh, interview with Paul Newman about his life. And uh, he was asked about his relationship with Joanne Woodward and how it had lasted so many generations and seemingly so happily. And he said, as it turns out, we loved each other. Well, in answer to your question, you know, at a certain point in my life, the struggles I was have with purpose and so on, as it turns out, I'm pretty good at this stuff. And I'm not good at everything. And I may not be good at relationships. <laughs> but I think that, that, you know, there's an awful lot, in the, especially in the disaster relief part of these, this game, because when a disaster happens, it is very, very much like filmmaking. You know, we need the set done yesterday. There's, you know, the stakes are a lot higher in disaster. There, there are human lives in many cases. But the, the, the game is the same. The, the urgency and the ability to pivot and use one's imagination. I do find that when an emergency is happening, my ears get very tuned and I'm able to suss out what's what's needed. So I think, you know, so that answers the question. When you feel like you have something, you know, it's an area that I feel I have something to contribute to. So that's why I contribute to it. And it's an honor to do it. It's uh, There's no sacrifice involved. It's it's uh, It's quite the opposite. What, what do you get out of doing it? What lands in your heart and lands in your soul when you're out there and, and you're, you're, you're on the edge of disaster helping people? Well, here's the troubling part of it is that all of us that work in this, this field, and, and, and I think it's true of you and all the work you've done as well, we really, really want to solve the, the macro. Without appreciating the micro, the successes that we have on the ground, the, the small or the individual ones, we get lost by the macro because the macro is, is ever-changing and ever-unpredictable. And it can look like too much. And I remember just in a very visual way experiencing this the first time in Haiti. I'd been on the ground for about three months. And I'd come to know the city of Port-au-Prince very, very well. But you're only at the place that you're at, at at any given time. And you look down one street, and you look down another street, and you say to yourself, we can fix this. And then I went on a uh, delivery to the north with the United States military in a helicopter. We had a lot of uh, medical supplies, mostly casting and that sort of thing, to, to deliver up in the north of Haiti. And as the helicopter took off from the LZ that, at our base, 
And I got up above this city that I'd spent three months in at that point and saw just how the size of destruction of that earthquake. That was the first time I got emotional because I felt like you know, I was in a facilitator position and things were working. And then you see how big it is. And this goes back to what I talk about mandatory services because there's no one of us that are going to be able to take on the challenges of the, of the new generation. Uh, there's all of us. That's the only way that it works. And, and that's how it did work in Haiti. In that country, you know, which has sadly fallen so far back and is in this desperate state today, but getting past that earthquake, which they did, not including the, obviously the 250 some odd thousand people that are dead and those that mourn them continue. But the devastation of the 2010 earthquake on the infrastructure is gone. And now, in, you know, it's heartbreaking to see all the new devastations that have been brought, but it's gone because of the participation of every one of those Haitian people, uh, from the people that worked with us or other organizations to people that just did for themselves uh, and picked the pieces back up. Yeah, I love what you say about the, 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 the micro and the, and the macro. You know, I spend too much of my life now uh, dealing with the macro, dealing with governors and senators and state legislators and occasionally presidents trying to pass this big bill that you hope is somehow going to get some money to this agency that will then get to this state that they will then get to this mayor and somehow it's going to get in somebody's back pocket, but maybe never get into the belly of a kid. And you just keep grinding away on those marble floors, you know, up and down hallways, talking to people. And uh, I miss the days when I was more quote unquote micro. It was right there on the ground in Oakland, California, dealing with youth violence in youth centers, in laundromats, trying to pass out flyers. It's important, you know, what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, when you think about all the, the individual people that you've met in places like Haiti and in you know, other places, I wonder if you could think about you know, all the way down to the micro of the micro. Can you tell me a story about somebody you met who really impacted you, changed you, uh, showed you something? Uh, I think a lot of people have, they think the way you learn is you, you, you read books, you talk to professors, you listen to pundits like people like myself on TV. But in my life, I've learned the most from people at the grassroots level. And I just wonder if there's any, anybody you want to bring to mind and, and share with my Uncommon Ground community. The first person I thought of, I was at a ceremony at the uh, National Palace in Port-au-Prince. And I was standing next to a very tall, dignified-looking police officer, very stoic. And people were being given uh, the, the equivalent of knighthoods at this ceremony a government ceremony to honor those who had pitched in significantly uh, following the earthquake. And each of these, each person's story is read aloud. And they were telling this guy's story, the guy standing next to me, totally stoic still, as, they, as he listened back to the, his own story. And his story was that he had gotten off shift at about four o'clock one afternoon on, uh, in January. And he went home. Most of those homes are multi-generational. And his was a, a two-level multi-generational home. His parents lived there, his brothers and their wives and so on, and his kids. And they were all in the main room when he walked in after work, watching something on television. And he went upstairs, put his uniform next to the shower, took a shower walked back down, and the family knew what he did at that time. He, you know, you don't see a lot of smoking in Haiti unless you're around me because it's too expensive a habit. 
But the, he had his ration where he'd walk outside the door after he got in his civvies before joining his family around the television. And he'd have that afternoon cigarette. And the ground shook. And he turned around and every one of his family were dead. All of them under, under the, the, the second floor had, had pa completely pancaked. After struggling and struggling to get to an opening, some neighbors jumping in and so on, and finding that they were all dead, what remained was the uniform that he'd hung next to the shower upstairs. And he put it on, and he went out and was credited with saving 500 people's lives on that day. So I, I wish I knew his name. The other one was on a day when I had blood on my arms and was carrying uh, people and supplies up a hill all day and uh, myself, my whole team. It was one of the more, let's say, eventful days in this kind of a drama. And I had made a no flags order of, at our camp for our, our group. Uh, nobody was going to raise it. an American flag. No one was going to raise this flag, that flag, because we had too many countries, many of whom were in political opposition and so on, working together in an emergency. So no flags. And I come up the hill, and there's uh, the flag of Israel has been painted on one of our water towers. And it was right next. It was the water that was supplying our medical tent. And I started kicking the dirt and kicking the dirt and kicking the dirt and yelling and screaming. And there was a young American soldier there to be a humanitarian support force. And he'd been watching me be otherwise productive all day until I started kicking the dirt over this flag being hung. And all he said to me is he said, stay focused. Hmm. So those are my two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can't tell you how much I admire you and how much I appreciate you, how much I appreciate our friendship over the years. It takes a lot of heart to do what you do. And I can tell that what you do is informed by the reality of people's suffering and the reality of people's heroism and the reality of people who have to overcome fear and have to overcome stuff that we can't even dream about. And, you know, you bear witness, but it's the bottom up coming together that's always righteous and, and good, especially when you're crossing different lines. And you, know, you cross a lot of lines, and I appreciate you very much. What I know is that at the end of the day, the people who are getting the vaccine, the people who aren't getting the vaccine, have the same basic problem, which is that life is very short, and you know we're going to too many funerals. And you don't solve problems by talking about people. You solve problems by talking to people. In a crisis, as you know better than anybody else, if you turn on each other, you die. If you turn to each other, you live. Sure enough. And you know we got we got to turn to each other because we got to live. Well, I appreciate you, brother. Be continued. Thank you, Van. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. Well, you can see why Sean Penn is a literal living legend. And he's one of a kind. Uh, he is one of one. And the first thing I just want to say is whether you agree or disagree with his opinions, you have to respect who he is. Back in the 80s and the 90s, there was a group called Act Up. And it was a militant organization sticking up for 
survivors of the AIDS pandemic. And they had a, a slogan, it was called Earn Your Attitude. Earn Your Attitude. So, I mean, they were in your face, they were militant, they were insisting that the Reagan and Bush administrations take AIDS seriously, but they did the work. They funded some of the life-saving medical research themselves. They, they, they challenged government officials, they challenged the Pope, and they said, you know, earn your attitude. And I think that Sean Penn has earned his attitude because he has put his body where his mouth is in a way that very few people have, famous or otherwise. And I think he's a guy who understands the value of human life and has seen real suffering up close and personal and would do anything himself to prevent that suffering from uh, continuing. And I think that's that animates his stand, even if you don't agree with it. You know, secondly, you know, he's on a shakier ground when he is moving from his own heroism that he takes on as a volunteer and then starts encouraging mandatory heroism, mandatory sacrifice. That, that's on shakier ground. You know, Rousseau talks about, can we force people to be free? Can we force you to be free? These are, are long debates and long conversations. That said, he's putting his finger on something very important, which is we need some common activity. We need to get out of these bubbles. We need to get out of these silos and these, these tiny, tiny perspectives that the algorithms on our cell phones keep reinforcing. Every time we open up one of these social media apps, we get pushed further and further down these separate rabbit holes. I unite with him in his desire that we could come out of our homes and you know have some kind of shared common purpose. Let's clean up some parks together. Let's, let's help some people together. He's not wrong. But we don't want the government forcing us to be citizens. We need to act like citizens a lot more than we do. Last thing I'll say, you may be like Sean. Uh, you may be like Sean Penn and not know it. In that Sean Penn has one skill set around acting and producing and directing and all this sort of stuff. And it turns out it is a remarkably life-saving skill set in a disaster. Who knew that that skill set could be transferred so powerfully to a completely different context to help people. And so I would just encourage you to do a, an inventory. What are you good at in your day-to-day -day context that might be life-saving or life-changing in another context? If you're good at explaining stuff to people, maybe you could be a mentor someplace. If you're good at staying fit, maybe you could be a nutrition or health counselor in a senior citizen home or in a neighborhood where they don't have access to the kind of food and nutrition and stuff that you know about. Who knows what you're good at and how much good you could bless others with if you did what you were good at in a different place, in a different way, a different context. Uh, you might be like Sean Penn. We all might be like Sean Penn. I think we probably all have a little bit of that in us. And so I think we should explore it. Let's get out there and earn our attitudes by trying to find some uncommon ground. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Adesua Agbanile, Sundus Hassan Noli, and Lindsay Cradlewell. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. 
Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Waltneen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jackman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 65th National Finals of Distinguished Young Women. Every year, one girl from every state leaves her family, her whole life behind, for two weeks and spends each day training, practicing, preparing. Because to win this competition, she needs to wow a panel of judges with her academic record, her athletic ability, her speaking skills, and a show-stopping talent. I met her and I was like, she's going to win. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. When I sing that song about being a black woman in America, there's going to be backlash about that. Oh, I'm just so happy. So happy. I don't want to see them. I don't want to talk to them. And then we stayed with them for the next year, unpacking just what happened those two weeks in Mobile. I'm Shimoliai, and from Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.